This is an ABC podcast. How much cash is there in your wallet right now? This week on Download This Show, is the age of cash over as we move to digital forms of payment? But who will that leave behind? And on the other end of the money spectrum, from the new world of blockchain to cryptocurrencies and NFTs and everything in between, we are in a period of global monetary transformation. But what does that all mean for the way society functions day to day? All of that and much more coming up. My name is Mark Fennell and this is a special money episode of Download This Show. So what does that all mean for the way society functions day to day? All of that and much more coming up. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to a very special Future of Money episode of Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Jesse Hughes, creative technologist, joining us from our Brisbane studios. Welcome back. Good day. Thank you. Thank you. It's a bit of a cool one in Brizzy today. So, you know, Queenslanders aren't doing too well. <laughs> I refuse to believe that that is the case. <laughs> uh, and joining us from RMIT's Blockchain Innovation Hub, dare I even say, Chris Berg, the Blockchain Innovation Hub. <laughs> Welcome to download this show. No, thank you so much. It's really exciting to be talking about just money, I guess. We're talking about money. <laughs> I feel like the more we talk about it, like this, it'd be like... I just hope it will come to me. That's the, <laughs> just it's like the like the secret. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't want to get too Oprah, but I believe if I just talk about it, money will come to me. It is becoming increasingly clear that cash is no longer king and the way we deal with money is very much the domain of the digital. But... What is the future of that? Before we talk about the future, let's talk about the past. I realized the other day when somebody asked for cash only, (laughs) I had none. (laughs) And I'm sure I'm not the only person to realize this. In my life, I'm not dealing with a lot of cash. There's lots of people around here who probably are still dealing with cash in different areas. What is the current status, Chris, of cash in Australia? Is it on its way to oblivion or is there always going to be some parts of our, our banking, our interaction that's going to involve a bit of hard currency? Look, I I think it's clearly on its way to oblivion. It's going to take a long time to get there um, unless there are policy choices made to eliminate cash. But I mean, you're you're absolutely right. So I I use cash for really two things. I use it to give my children pocket money because they don't (laughs) have credit cards. Yet. Yet. The night is young, Chris. (laughs) Or the two or $1 coins to get the supermarket trolleys, right? But apart from that, we use credit cards and even credit cards are starting to feel a little bit, or debit cards are starting to feel a bit antiquated because Mm. of course we've all got these mobile phones and we um, can all now, almost all of us can just tap using our mobile phone. I mean, cash globally is on its way out. And there are some countries that it's more advanced, some countries that are less advanced. In Australia, we have a pretty good payment system. We have good connectivity between our banks, our mobile phones, our credit cards. Our merchants have lots of FBOS machines and now all those um, little striped squares and all those sorts of things. So there's a incredibly declining demand for cash itself. Now, there may well be pockets of the economy that continue to use cash for various reasons, but um, for most things and most circumstances, it's on its way out. We do know, thanks to the Reserve Bank, that cash use has fallen to a 15-year low. Jesse, I I was interested to know, because one of the things I realised the last couple of years is that I I suspect that COVID has accelerated that change. You know, suddenly everybody moving to digital payments and whatnot. Do you think COVID has had an impact on that or am I just giving it too much credit? 
No, absolutely. I mean, if you go back to that period, like we were trapped inside. The only way to buy things was over the internet. And there was an uptake in like education for elderly users as well. And the old, elderly users are typically people who use cash and checks and that kind of thing. Um, and they, you know, had to learn how to use digital ways of payment to kind of exist in, in during that period. And so I think that's definitely played a strong role in the pivot. And my grandmother, she used to get a bus to go to the shopping centre to go and get cash. And it was this whole thing for her. And I was like, why? Well, I could just, like, I can just teach you how to do it on the internet. But for her, it was the experience of leaving the house, having a reason to go outside, having a reason to talk to people, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I thought it was just an interesting little backstory with with that. I mean, you've also got to consider um, in states of, say, crisis, say if there's fires or for whatever reason technology goes out, like cash is, is it. Cash is king in those emergency situations. In the event of an apocalypse, cash will still be required. Cash, yeah. I think it's like four minutes into the show, somebody's brought up the apocalypse. I think that's like a record. We, we are prepared. Like, we are going to be so prepared when this hits, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think you've, you've raised a really good point there, which is like, there are clearly pockets of society for whom cash is still king. And you mentioned the, the elderly, and there's certainly vulnerable people um, right across Australia as, uh, who fall into that category. And, and also a lot of people for whom, quite simply, their industry works on cash, right? Are we managing that well enough? Are we bringing everyone along well enough? And should we? You know, is that necessarily a good thing, Jesse? Yeah, like if we want to talk about a few stats, like bank branches, they've declined by 30% in major cities and and 29% in regional and remote areas. So actual branches aren't really existent. ATMs in Australia, they've declined by about 25%. So there's a quarter less ATMs. And then you've got because of the declining use of transactions and stuff, the people that move cash across the country, so cash and transit services like Armaguard, and they are actually t- taking the cost of moving, like physically moving cash around the country. So, yeah, just it's, it's interesting looking at the landscape and how much everything else is is changing, and that brick and mortar um, physicality is really, really taking a, a, a significant change. Mm. Chris, there are groups of people who are either by choice or by simply the nature of the work they do deal in cash more than others. Is there a sort of inequality that we are facing at the moment in that? There is. I, mean, I, I will point out on the elderly elderly users of cash, I think we shouldn't underestimate the upskilling that has occurred amongst older Australians. I mean, we've had the internet for now, you know, multiple decades in Australia. And we've had devices that are very easy to use. So the modern smartphone are incredibly easy to use. People that we might have said some decades ago were, mm. were struggling to get involved with the um, computers are largely very, very capable and competent. But there are other communities out there that, as you point out, are focused on cash. And particularly, there are communities that either struggle to get bank accounts. So if you are unable to get a bank account or you're unable to get a credit card or so forth. There are a group of unbanked people in Australia and Mm. in the absence of cash, they are going to really struggle. There are also industries that are legal or semi-legal or whose uh, customers might not want their banks to know that they are using them. The most obvious one here is um, sex work. They tend to be cash heavy because they like the privacy of cash as well. The privacy of cash is actually a really important part of cash too. And one of the things that I've been very concerned about with the end of cash story is there are a lot of people who use, who secret away cash, for example, a, a secreted away from potentially violent or mm. abusive partners. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
there's so many different ways in which people could be using cash that are more complex than I think sometimes we make space for. Exactly. And 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 that's a really important part of the story, which is in, in part why I don't like the idea that um, a lot of policymakers will talk about the end of cash as, it, as if it is something we should be aspiring to. Mm. Um, it, it is probably the way we are going, but it shouldn't be a deliberate public policy decision because there are some people who still need cash. Well, I think this is an interesting thing to talk about, right, which is um, there are aspects of cash that are very hard to replace in a digital construct. And I think privacy and is, is, is crucially among them. Of all of the different kinds of currency out there available, and we're going to get into a, a deeper chat about, about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, we'll get into that properly later, but, but of all the different options out there, is there anything that some comes close to replicating the privacy of cash? Yeah, yeah, there is. So there are cryptocurrencies that are even more private than cash that you can transact completely privately. No one but the people who are transacting know what funds have been sent where, what time, and so forth. Great technologies. They haven't had massive adoption, partly because they're a little bit difficult to use. But other than a couple of small instances, most of these are either cryptocurrencies or digital currencies or just transacting using FPOS machines and so forth are not private. Sometimes they're not private. People, the whole public can look at the blockchain ledger or your bank knows what you're doing. So we we do, we are losing something as we're moving away from cash. One thing that I do think doesn't get as much attention, Jesse, is the death of the check. How are people going to win game shows without a giant, hilarious novelty, definitely legal tender, not to scale check? Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Well, as of 2022, just 0.1% of transactions were settled with a check. So yes, it is It is the death of the check, really. Um, the governments are coming out and saying that by 20, 2030, um, <laughs> the check will be phased out. I'm 30, almost 30, and I don't know how to use a check. If someone gave me a $10,000 check, I would. I, I don't even know what to do with it. I don't know, take it to a bank and hope that they will give me lots of money. This feels like a, a TikTok content where you get like <laughs> things that boomers and millennials know how to do and then you put it in front of a Gen <laughs> Z person and be like, can you do this? That is it. Yes. Get out your checkbook for <sighs> me, please, Mark. <laughs> you make me feel old and I'm like 20 minutes older than you. But anyway... I am I'm at the very end of millennial, so I'm over 40. Heavens. And I've never used a check. How is your Zimmer frame? <laughs> yeah, cheers. <laughs> My back is very painful. But there are, this is funny because I spend a lot of time in the US and Americans still use checks. Partly that's because the US and other countries as well haven't actually upgraded their payment system as well as we have. Um, so it is trivially easy for us to send very large amounts of value instantaneously just using digital payments between bank to bank. There was a policy brought in by the Reserve Bank of Australia a couple of years ago called the New Payments Platform. That's why now when we make payments to each other, it's instant. You don't have to wait the three days or four days or business days or whatever it was um, prior to that. And and that basically killed the check or killed need for the check mm. overnight because we can just make big transfers of payment instantaneously. Uh, we don't need checks anymore. Uh, you are listening to download this show. It is normally your guide to the week in media, technology and culture, but we are looking at the future of money this week. And of course, when you talk about the future of money, you always end up talking inevitably about cryptocurrencies. It's probably not a bad idea, Chris, of just getting like, for people who've heard the term, but maybe def haven't used it, how would you go about describing what a cryptocurrency actually is? 
Cryptocurrencies are pretty simple. They're native internet digital assets. They're a they're a money or an asset that exists solely on the internet. It's not just a digitized version of something else. And what's super cool about cryptocurrencies is that they're not issued by any government or they're not issued by any company. They're they're decentralized. They're shared across um, uh, thousands, hundreds, and thousands of computers around the world. They just exist on the internet. It's a it's a super cool technology and it has a lot of really interesting implications for the nature of money and the way we transact and the way we exchange value and and really, really the future of the financial system. And there are some very big, well-known ones and then a lots of sort of smaller altcoins that sometimes rise massively and, and, and shrink massively mm. and uh, <laughs> are a little bit closer to like spectating. In terms of the major ones, Chris, are there ones that you think are, are worth, you know, primarily worth people investigating? The first one, of course, is Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is its own particular digital asset invented by the pseudonymous Satoshi Nakamoto. But there are other ones like Ethereum, which runs the Ethereum blockchain that people launch other cryptocurrencies on. There are lots of applications that give us money-like assets. Um, Stable coins are a very popular money-like asset that are pegged to typically the US dollar. So you can do US dollar denominated transactions and store of value and so forth. As you point out, there's just thousands, if not tens of thousands of these cryptocurrencies all vying for adoption and and in many cases all vying to compete for the future of money. Are we looking at a future where one or a handful of those win and the others wither away or is it going to be a more complicated ecosystem where there's a few major ones and kind of a wild west of other ones that people can kind of you know speculate on and and lose huge amounts of money? Like how do you imagine the ecosystem of it is going to be different from the way we look at money at the moment? It's just it's just the onboarding personally is where I always get bogged down with when it comes to crypto. Like there is quite a steep learning curve in terms of setting up a wallet and then understanding what is I think because it's so um, influenced by fads and like we are we've seen in the last year it's like get this one 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 and then the volatility and people make tens and thousands of dollars and then they lose it and then they've got this like there is such a space of. I don't know what I should be doing and I don't know where I should be putting my money, which in a functional society is my most valuable thing. For you, Chris, is it a case where one or two will win or is it going to be more complicated than that? I'm kind of fascinated by what you think the future of the ecosystem is going to be. So it's going to be more complicated in part because uh, they're not all trying to be money, right? So mm. money is valuable if, if we're all using the same money. And so there will be money-like cryptocurrencies, and there'll probably only be a few of those. But cryptocurrencies do lots of things. They're not all intended to be, quote, currencies, right? So some of them look more like shares. Some of them look more like commodities. And so the question of, you know, how many cryptocurrencies or digital assets will be there is like, how how many stocks will there be? How many Mm. commodities will there be? It's going to only get more confusing in a lot of ways because we're going to start doing things like taking traditional assets and putting them on blockchain so that they operate and function like cryptocurrencies um, so that your Telstra shares might ultimately be on the Ethereum blockchain that you can trade in those very same wallets that you might hold Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin and so forth. I think there's there's going to be this big convergence of digital assets, all of which do very many different things. I hope that um, uh, entrepreneurs and, and developers can can make the system less confusing, but it's certainly going to be um, a more complicated ecosystem in the future. Chris, we've seen in the news recently quite a few headlines around one of the, I guess, one of the most popular 
trading apps, uh, Binance. Why is it that there was controversy over Binance? Binance is a centralized company. It, it operates, I, I hasten to use like a bank, but it's a an exchange. So it's a company that exists that you go to and you sign up to and they will sell you cryptocurrency. Last year, a very large one of these exchanges called FTX collapsed and not just collapsed and took its customers' money with it, but it's accused of actually just basically stealing its customers' money. Um, so you would put money, your dollars or or what have you on, on FTX and you'd say, can I have some Bitcoin, please? And they would take your dollars and they would tell you that they've bought Bitcoin, but or it's alleged that in fact, they just took your money. And so when it collapsed, that became a huge thing. Now, in one sense, and I'm, I'm not suggesting Binance have done any of the same, but there are some accusations that the US government has made and US regulators have made about things like um, they mixed their own accounts with customers' accounts and so forth. And the courts will make final decisions about that. But it's actually a very old story. The idea that companies might not look after the funds that you give them carefully enough and they, they might take your money and do other things with it. Uh, that's why we have regulation. Unfortunately, we don't have very coherent or clear regulation around these cryptocurrency companies, these cryptocurrency exchanges. And I hope that the Australian government, there's work being done in the Australian government, hopefully the US government, there's great work being done in Europe and the UK. We, we need regulatory change so that people are confident in using these companies as ways to onboard to cryptocurrency. But cryptocurrency itself is quite different because cryptocurrency isn't run by companies. It's run by mm. these huge decentralized networks of validators and miners and all these complicated things. Um, it is quite different from the companies where people vouchsafe their funds to. Does that make it harder to regulate? The fact that it has to exist in these multiple jurisdictions and say, you know, like a a currency is subject to the law of the land in the US or Australia or or else. Does that make it that much more complicated to regulate? It absolutely, it makes it extremely difficult to regulate because it's very difficult to decide where a cryptocurrency is because in a funny way, it's everywhere. Um, It's everywhere that someone is validating the network. It's not based in one country, it's based in all countries. Um, So that creates some huge regulatory challenges. There are lots of other regulatory challenges, right? Usually we regulate companies. Usually we regulate organizations that have boards and offices and um, legal identities, and there are no legal identities for most of these cryptocurrencies. So there are some really hard philosophical and conceptual issues that regulators are going to have to come to. I think some regulators are doing a good job in trying to tackle those problems and others others less so. Um, but it's certainly for the next you know five, 10 years, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how, how and whether we should regulate these cryptocurrencies. For you as a user, Jesse, does it, <laughs> I, I guess hearing all that, does it change whether or not it is a world you do or don't want to engage in? Ugh. I have mates who, in high school who bought Bitcoin when it was going on and then it became what it was and obviously everybody was kicking themselves so they didn't join the party. So I'm kind of in this middle ground of is it 10 years from now that we're all like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't buy this stuff or is it something that we're happy to avoid? Like for me, again, it comes back to the learning curve. Like it is something that I personally have found quite complex to follow as well and be able to differentiate between what is genuinely a good investment choice and something that is murky. I, I think that's a, it's a really important point that we actually need 
and upskilling because cryptocurrency is here to say. I think it's very exciting. So I think the idea that we've got more democratic access to financial instruments and and institutions, that is a genuinely good development. But of course, we need to be able to do so in an informed way. Part of the way that we can do so is through, you know, some regulatory approaches that maybe offer more disclosures, but also, you know, we we have to learn more about it and we have to have the resources to do so. Now, I'm talking my own book here because I'm at a university and I run education courses in, in <laughs> I'll blockchain come to and cryptocurrency. I'll come to so everybody come to RMIT, it'll be great. Um, uh, that'll really help me and my KPIs. Um, <laughs> but I don't really see an alternative, but education Given that this technology, it definitely exists, it's definitely exciting, and people definitely want to use it. I am kind of oddly curious, though, what do you think good regulation looks like? Because I, a big part of, I think, the appeal of cryptocurrencies kind of writ large is that it is it does exist outside, to some extent, traditional money markets. And I think, at least in its early days, it, it was, I think, some of its popularity was rooted in distrust. That means it's always going to be slightly outside the realm of traditional banking, and therefore hard to regulate and hard to regulate without kind of taking away the thing that I think attracts people in the first place. So what do you think good regulation in a cryptocurrency space actually looks like? I don't think it's actually as hard as most people think. So um, it's e- it's easy to imagine ways that it's hard, but we need to regulate the exchanges. So we need to say, if we're going to give a company money, that needs to be vouchsafed well and custodied well and those sorts of things. And really, no one disagrees with that. Uh, If you're going to sell a cryptocurrency, if you're going to launch a cryptocurrency, there's probably some disclosure obligations that you should have. We have disclosure obligations in traditional financial markets. We need ones that suit crypto markets as well about who is the original team and how many people have this token and and all those sorts of things. We probably need some regulation around some of the fiat-backed stablecoins. So these are the stablecoins that have mm. real dollars in real bank accounts. Those are both the low-hanging fruit and the ones that we really should be focusing on. The technology is going to exist and there's always going to be these pockets of wild, wild west. And I don't know that there's any way to avoid that. I think that's where a lot of the most innovative ideas come from. But as long as we're teaching people that, you know, if you go into the Wild West, it's more risky. A chance of getting huge outside gains is also the chance of having huge outside losses. That's the education piece. The regulation piece, I'm, I'm just not convinced is as hard as people suggest. A lot of banks, including the Reserve Bank of Australia, have been investigating the use of a central bank digital currency. How would that actually operate? You can think of a central bank digital currency like a putting the Australian dollar itself on a blockchain so that it can mm. be traded and exchanged in the very same way that we trade and exchange money on a blockchain. Um, I'm currently involved in a project with the Reserve Bank to look at a real life stablecoin and some um, proof of concept applications that have been built on that as well. The Reserve Bank in Australia is, has historically been a little bit sceptical about the need because we've got such a great payment system that seems to to do really well for us. But I, I think there are some interesting advantages that we could get from a CBDC too. I do have a question as to the sustainability of this. Like much has been understandably made about the sheer amount of energy that's involved in, in mining cryptocurrencies. Are some of those criticisms fair and do they need more scrutiny? 
They definitely are fair. There's two different models that we're kind of talking about here. There's proof-of-work cryptocurrencies and proof-of-stake. So proof-of-work is like Bitcoin. Um, so Bitcoin, that has about the energy usage um, of about the 23rd largest economy in terms of any consum- energy consumption. So this is massive, massive amounts of energy. Before 2022, Ethereum was also um, using that proof-of-work system, but now they have shifted to proof-of-stake, which is a less energy-intensive model, and I think that is a really excellent sign that people know that this is the direction we need to be moving things in. I'm pretty sure Bitcoin is still the biggest cryptocurrency, though, so I think like having a, a leader like Ethereum kind of set the set the charge that this is something we need to be moving towards in terms of how can we be doing this in a sustainable environmentally conscious way that has the lowest energy consumption as possible. Why is it consuming so much energy? Like what's happening that it, that it consumes all that energy? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, it, it's pretty straightforward. So Bitcoin, the invention of Bitcoin was basically a, a consensus mechanism to come to agreement about who owns what Bitcoin uh, that used the solving of a very difficult mathematical puzzle. Now, it turns out by, by computer, so everybody competes to solve the difficult puzzle, and then they get to make the new block on the blockchain and, and, and so on forth like that. Now, solving this really difficult puzzle involves using your computer a lot, using mm. computation, using effectively energy run through a computer to solve really, really hard math problems. That's basically why it's so energy intensive. As time has gone by, that mathematical problem has gotten harder and harder and harder. That's just the nature of the consensus mechanism. So we've used more and more energy. To to back up the point made earlier, Bitcoin uses this energy intensive proof of work system, but the vast majority of cryptocurrencies do not. Yeah, I think if we are going to, as a society, adopt this, like I think there needs to be that that needs to be something that we encourage as consumers as well. That they're saying that this is we we want to be using coins that are environmentally um, conscious. Chris, you work with this stuff all the time. As you look at how we're interacting at the moment with our money, are you hopeful that the way we're going to interact in the future is going to be more equitable, or do you think uh, existing inequalities are going to be magnified by technology shifts? Oh, look, there's going to be a lot of really interesting challenges that we're going to have to face, but I'm genuinely very, very excited and optimistic about the um, sort of democratic nature of these technological changes. What we're doing is we're building a financial system from the ground up. You know, our existing financial system has a lot of problems. We've spoken about banks in this conversation. Mm-hmm. I don't love the banks. I don't love exactly how the financial sector has, you know, operated through the global financial crisis. I'm, I'm not pleased with those things. I think the financial sector is ripe for disruption and there's going to be challenges. There's always challenges with new technologies, but it's absolutely going in the direction I think most of us should be excited to see. Excellent. We are out of time. Huge thank you to Chris Berg, the director of the Blockchain Innovation Hub at RMIT. Thank you so much for being on the show, Chris. My pleasure. And creative technologist Jesse Hughes, it's a pleasure as always. Of course, the tooth fairy pays in Bitcoin these days. (laughs) (laughs) Get your wallets ready. (laughs) I did actually have to text somebody the other day going, what's the going rate for a tooth? Honestly, it's going up. up. My neighbours, they got a whole five bucks. Are you joking That's it. I mean, you have to adjust for inflation and the kids, they know. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Now, uh, a little bit of news about me. Uh, That is it for me on Download This Show. For a couple of months, all right? Oh I had gosh. a dramatic pause in there because <laughs> the boy loves the drama. 
I am going away to shoot the next series of Stuff the British Stole for ABC TV, and that involves me chasing artifacts all around the world, and I cannot do the show at the same time. So that's, you know, I'm assuming bad news, and you're very sad about that. Uh, The good news is that the brilliant uh, Ray Johnson will be stepping in to fill in hosting the show for the next couple of weeks. Let's be honest, they'll do it better than I do anyway. Um, But basically, I won't be around until pretty much October, thereabouts. I will say, though, if you miss me, uh, there is a brand new series of the Stuff the British Doll podcast that is out now, three episodes out now. You can listen to that, you know, just on the off chance you get sick of my voice. I know, no one is. Anyway, uh, that is it from me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.